Good morning and Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are great, that you are worthy to be praised. So we pray that we would now worship you through the preaching of your word. That as we meditate on this particular text of scripture, we would be drawn, our hearts would be drawn to worship your son. Father, we ask that you would please be with me, that I would be clear, that I would be faithful to this text, that you would speak through my words to the hearts of your people. We pray for all who are listening, that you would grant ears to hear, and that you would truly change us through your wonderful word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're here on Friday night, you'll know that we're taking a, a very short break from the Gospel of Luke for uh, our Christmas Eve Eve service and then our Christmas Day sermon. Uh, to show a little love to our friend Matthew, look at his account of what happened after Jesus was born. And so our text this morning is going to be the same as our text on Friday night. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 again, but this time we're going to be looking at the passage from a slightly different angle. So let's start by just reading the text once again. Look along and listen as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word that God has for you this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The passage, it's a well-known story. It's It's a good Christmas text. It's a centrally important uh, scene in any decent Christmas play. But first and foremost, that is a passage about worship. It's a passage about worshiping Jesus rightly as king. On one hand, you've got the wise men. 
We looked at them in detail on Friday night. We have come to worship him who has been born king of the Jews. And so they're resolved in their worship. They travel hundreds and hundreds of miles and will stop at nothing to find the one born king of the Jews. They're rejoicing in their worship. Remember how Matthew tells us they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they finally found Jesus. And they're reverent in their worship. They're falling on their faces. They're, they're bowing down to God incarnate, the baby Jesus. And so the wise men in this narrative present to us an example of true worshipers of King Jesus. But you see, the passage also presents another side, like a dark side, if you will, because not everybody worships King Jesus. You've got Herod, and you've got the chief priests and the scribes, both of whom don't worship the newborn king. And with both groups, it's not ignorance or a lack of knowledge. No, they know exactly who he is. They simply refuse to worship the one born king of the Jews. And since we spent Friday night thinking about that first group, right, the wise men, what we can learn from them about true worship, well, let's spend this morning looking at that second group, Herod and the scribes, and what we can learn from them about those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus as king. So first, this morning, we're going to just go through the story, focusing on these two characters, and we're going to look at three warnings that we should take away from this text. We'll start with Herod, and maybe it'd be helpful to first just take a minute to just kind of get all of our Herod straight. When I was in elementary school, this is like the early 90s, it seemed like every other girl in my class was named Jennifer. And so you get really confusing because you've got Jennifer L and you've got Jennifer S and you've got Jennifer T and they'd always sit together and one of them was Jen and one of them was Jenny. It just was very, very confusing. It's kind of like the Herods of the Bible. It can get really confusing because there's four different guys named Herod. They're all rulers of some sort. And so let's just kind of sort them out. There's Herod the Great. He's the guy that we're talking about today. He dies shortly after Jesus is born, and so he kind of exits the scene pretty quickly. There's his son, Herod Antipas. Uh, he's the guy who cuts off John the Baptist's head. He's the guy who's involved in Jesus' trial. And then there's another Herod, Herod Agrippa, who is the grandson of the first Herod. He's the Herod that appears in the book of Acts, and he uh, kills the apostle James, and he, uh, God strikes him dead, right, in Acts chapter 12. And then there's his son, Herod Agrippa II. He's the guy who puts Paul on trial at the very end of the book of Acts. And so there's four Herods. Right? Our Herod, when I say Herod for the rest of the sermon, I'm referring to this guy, is the first Herod. He is the Herod that kind of started this Herodian dynasty. He's Herod the Great. A secular history tells us that Herod the Great came to power around 37 BC or so. Uh, the Romans made him ruler over that area of Judea, and they gave him the title King of the Jews because his subjects were primarily the Jewish people. Now, Herod himself was not Jewish. He's an Edomite, but he is made ruler over the Jewish people. And Herod rules for over three decades, and he was known for being a very savvy 
politician and diplomat and also known for his amazing building projects. Right? His most famous and biblically relevant building project, of course, was refurbishing and renovating and expanding the temple in Jerusalem that the exiles who returned to the land built in the book of Ezra. Right? He refurbishes that whole thing. And so when the Jews say to Jesus, right, John chapter 2, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? They're referring to that building project that Herod the Great started. But Herod is also known for being a really ruthless and cruel king. If you know the history of that region, uh, the centuries before, you'll know that it was an area that was always under turmoil and uh, political struggle and fighting and wars and like powers constantly changing hands there. Herod's very aware of that, and so he's constantly fearful of threats to his power. Just like Shakespeare said, right? uneasy is the head that wears the crown. That uneasiness for Herod, it manifested itself in some really horrible things that he did, uh, even killing his own wife and his own sons, having them put to death to eliminate these threats, right? secure and consolidate his power. So now imagine that you're King Herod. You have held that title, King of the Jews, for the last 30-something years. You've gone to extreme lengths to eliminate any threats to your throne. And now you hear some wise men from the east, they've come into Jerusalem, and they're asking, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? King of the Jews, that's, that's my title. That's who I am. And so verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Other translations have deeply disturbed. Like this is really shaking him to the core. So instead of worshiping him, as the wise men have come to do, Herod becomes desperate to get rid of him. But think about it. Surely a man with as many enemies as Herod, who's held on to his throne and his power for three decades by any means necessary, like surely he has had to ward off many, many challengers to his throne. Many threats to power, some even from his own house. So the question is, like, what's the big deal? Like, why is he so troubled by some yet unsubstantiated rumblings from some foreigners who have come from the East. Well, for one, these dudes are talking about following a star, and so you know, there's something wacky and supernatural going on here. And they're talking about worshiping him, and so clearly this is no ordinary challenger to his power. But it's also that this particular threat was born king of the Jews. Born king of the Jews. And so the threat is not one of like potential rebellion or assassination or overthrow. No, the threat here is a challenge to legitimacy. This one who has been born king of the Jews, he has the birthright to be the king of the Jews. A birthright that Herod himself doesn't have. You see, we're kind of jumping into the middle of Matthew here, right? We're just kind of picking up this story in the middle of chapter 2. But we need to remember that this book was meant to be read from beginning to end. 
And so by the time we get to this story, we're supposed to have already read chapter one, which means we're supposed to have already read the genealogy that starts the book off. Now, if you're wondering why in the world would you start a book with a genealogy, well, part of the answer is to prove legally that Jesus, through his descent from King David and the kings that followed him, that Jesus was a true heir to the title King of the Jews. Herod can't trace his lineage back to King David. Herod's not even a Jew. And so Rome might call him king of the Jews, but Herod knows. And Matthew's readers at this point know, we know this man is not the true, legit king of the Jews. He does not have the birthright. He does not have the genealogy. And so Herod panics because he realizes the true king of the Jews the one whose title I have usurped illegitimately for the last three decades, that king of the Jews has arrived. And Herod's one of those people, maybe you've got an uncle like this, like when he's troubled, like everybody's troubled, all Jerusalem with him is troubled, probably because they know just how crazy he is. They know that if Herod feels threatened, like, there's no telling what he would do. Like, would he be crazy enough to, I don't know, kill all the children in the region two years old and younger? Yeah, he's that crazy. And so everybody is troubled. But Herod needs some answers here. And so he gathers the chief priests, he gathers the scribes, and he asks them, look at verse 4, where the Christ was to be born. If you're paying attention, that's two more hints in that verse that Herod has at least some understanding that this is no ordinary threat to his throne. It's what Herod calls the baby and who Herod consults for help. First, consider what he calls him. He asks where the Christ was to be born. He doesn't just ask where is this king going to be born. He asks where the Christ was to be born Christ, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, referring to the long-awaited Savior of God's people, the one who would come from King David's line to sit on David's throne forever. Herod realizes that's who we're talking about here. And we see that also in who he consults. Who does he consult for insight into this threat? He does not go to his chief of security. He doesn't go gather the intelligence reports from his spies. He consults the chief priests and scribes. What do they know? Well, they're the religious leaders of the day. Why ask them? Because these guys know their Bible. And so again, Herod understands this threat is no ordinary threat. It's the one that's prophesied and predicted in God's holy word. So we're talking about the one who God himself promised to send to rule and reign over his people. And so if we want more information on him, we've got to ask the chief priests and the scribes. See, I think oftentimes we kind of underestimate Herod. But as we study this text, it just seems more and more obvious that, that he's more aware of what's going on than we might typically give him credit for. 
What about these other guys, the chief priests and the scribes? Who were they? They were the religious elite of first century Judaism. The chief priests, these guys are descendants of Aaron. Uh, They serve around the temple in, in various ways. And the scribes, these guys are like the theologians. They study the law. They write commentaries on the law. They taught their interpretations of the law. And so these guys are not just those who the rest of the Jewish society would look up to as kind of uh, religious heroes. But importantly for our context here, these are guys who know the Old Testament inside and out. Let's look at the dialogue here. Herod asks them, right, where are the Christ is to be born? Look at verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they're not like, all right, Herod, just... Give us a little time. We'll look this one up. We'll get back to you. There's not even hesitation. Like, oh, you know that. I think it's in the minor prophet somewhere. It's, someone get us a scroll. We can look it up. I, I know it's in there somewhere. They know right off the top of their heads. They know. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. These guys know their Bibles. And so they know exactly where this one born king of the Jews was. But if this was a Christmas play and your part was chief priest or or scribe, you realize at this point in the story, you're done. You can go home. That's your last line. That's your last scene. Because as far as the Christmas story goes, that's the last we're going to hear of them. Which is remarkable if you think about it. I mean, just a recap here. Wise men have come from the east. They follow this star all the way to the land of the Jews and they have come to worship the one born king of the Jews. Herod himself is shaken to the core as a result. Like he knows he's an imposter king. He knows he's not the true king of the Jews. He feels threatened like never before. The whole town is shaken because Herod is shaken. Everybody in Jerusalem is buzzing about this. You... You're a chief priest, you're a scribe, you know the minor prophets like the back of your hand, you know exactly where this Messiah is. He's in Bethlehem. But once you answer the question correctly, it's like you just carry on with your life. And so in that sense, the way they respond to Jesus is altogether different from Herod. Herod feels threatened. Herod's about to do something crazy. These chief priests and scribes, I think the best way to describe their response to the birth of the king of the Jews is apathy. They they just don't really seem to care. They don't say, hey, you know, we should go with these wise men to Bethlehem. Check this out for ourselves. Bethlehem isn't on the other side of the world. Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem. get there in no time but they refuse to worship. What a contrast with the wise men who would stop at nothing to worship the Messiah. So their rejection of King Jesus, very different from Herod's rejection of King Jesus. It's a rejection due to apathy and indifference, but it's rejection nonetheless. And perhaps, if you think about it, of those two rejections, It's the more surprising. Because you remember who Herod is. 
Herod's an Edomite. And the Edomites have been rejecting the Israelites since, so to speak, the days of Esau rejecting Jacob. So it's not a surprise that an Edomite descended from Esau is rejecting the Jewish Messiah descended from Jacob. But the chief priests and the scribes, these guys are not only Jews, but when it came to the things of God, these are like the the preeminent Jews. These are the the Hebrew of Hebrews, to use a Pauline term. For them to reject the Messiah from their own people, especially when Gentiles from the East have come to worship him. It's shocking. But it's exactly what John says in the prologue to his gospel. John 1, he came to his own, and his own people, we're talking scribes, we're talking chief priests, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, now we're talking about the wise men from the east, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the chief priests and the scribes, right, they're done. Exit stage left. Now we're shifting back to King Herod. Verse 7, summons the wise men secretly. Hey, I want you guys to go to Bethlehem. I want you to find this child. And when you do, I want you to come back and I want you to tell me so that I too may go and worship him. Now why would Herod summon the wise men secretly? Like why has this got to be a covert operation I think it's because everybody else in town knows how crazy and insecure Herod is about holding on to his power. And so if people found out that Herod is sending this delegation to Bethlehem to search for the one born king of the Jews, well, everybody knows that he's up to no good. Now, whether they could or would stop him is another question. But anybody who's lived under Herod's ruthless rule for the past three decades, like, you can read the writing on the wall. But these wise men, they're, they're new to town. They don't really know Herod. And so they seem to take Herod's word at face value. They think he's being sincere about worshiping Jesus. And we know that because their plan, after they find Jesus and worship him, their plan was to go back to Herod. It's only, verse 12, when God warns them in a dream not to do that, that they instead go home by another way. But as well as he might have disguise his intention to the wise men. Well, his true heart is revealed clearly later in the chapter. Look at verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so when this ruthlessness and cruelty that's kind of in line with his character and his reputation, but also at the same time is especially horrible. He has all the male children in that region put to death. But Jesus, of course, is spared because God told Joseph to flee with his family to Egypt. So that's the story of Herod and the chief priests, the scribes from Matthew chapter 2. The two groups that, in contrast to the wise men from the same story who are all about worshiping Jesus, well, they refuse to worship the newborn king. Well, now let's think about three warnings that I think we can take away from, from this tragic story of these 
two tragic characters. Warning number one, I think we see this really clearly in the lives of both Herod and the chief priests and the scribes. Warning number one is that knowing the scriptures is not enough. Knowing the scriptures is not enough. Let's start with Herod. Uh, For all the negative things that we really could say about him, there's a lot. One thing I think we need to give him credit for is that he really does seem to believe that the Bible is true. Like, if he didn't believe the Bible and what the Bible said in Old Testament prophecies about God sending this Messiah King, then he wouldn't have been so flustered and troubled when some wise men came looking for the one born King of the Jews. And if he didn't believe the Bible, well, he wouldn't ask the experts of the Bible, the chief priests and the scribes, where this Christ was going to be born. And if he didn't believe the Bible, like if he did not believe Micah chapter 5, verse 2, to be true, well, he surely would not have killed all those babies in Bethlehem. Herod, like at least to some extent, Herod believed the Bible to be true. But of course, it didn't result in true worship of Jesus as king. Instead, really, the only thing it resulted in was a horrific massacre. What about these chief priests? What about these scribes? Of course, they believe the Bible to be true. Of course, they believe the Bible to be the word of God. They even take it to the next level, right? They devote their entire lives to the Bible. They read it, and they studied it, and they memorized it, and they interpreted it, and they quoted it. But again, for all that knowledge, it didn't result in true worship of Jesus as king. Instead, they were just apathetic and indifferent to him. I mean, just think about it. These guys are quoting from memory Micah chapter 5. And they even introduce their memory verse, look at the text, with, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote their memory verse. For so it is written by the prophet. That's their acknowledgement. Like, here is the prophecy that is being fulfilled right before our eyes. But at the same time, we don't care enough to do anything about it. And so for all their knowledge of the scriptures it does not translate into the right worship of God and his son. And so in that sense, it's not only completely meaningless, but it's an abomination to God. Warning number one, knowing the scripture is not enough because knowledge of the scriptures doesn't necessarily produce right worship. And we see two striking illustrations of that here in King Herod and in these chief priests and scribes. friends, lest we just sit here and kind of on our high horses looking down at King Herod and these chief priests and scribes, I think this is a point on which we ought to examine our own hearts as well. Like as I look around this room, I know that many of you take your knowledge of the scriptures very seriously. Like you listen to sermons and you go to Bible studies and You study the scriptures, you read books about the scriptures, you download podcasts, you like to engage in theological discussion. You know the scriptures. 
But this is the million-dollar question for all of us. Does that knowledge then translate into right worship? When I learn a new theological truth, is it simply an increase in knowledge, like something that now I can share with other people so that they will think that I am well-read and cool? Or does it lead me to, in humility, worship King Jesus in spirit and in truth? Or when I'm convicted from the word of God of a sin in my life, does it just kind of remain in the realm of theory or do I act upon it so that I might worshipfully repent and bring my sin to King Jesus? When I show someone else what the Bible says, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? I'll show you where that is. That's in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It's in Bethlehem. Isn't that cool? Are you content to let them act on the word of God while you yourself remain entirely indifferent? Warning number one, knowing the scriptures is not enough. No, we must know the scriptures, but then we must have that heart of worship that takes that knowledge and makes it into a cause to rejoice and delight and glory in King Jesus. Warning number two is to beware of hardening hearts. Beware of hardening hearts. We talked about the chief priests and the scribes, their their shocking apathy towards the birth of the Messiah, just content to do nothing. And maybe you say, you know what? He's only a baby. They can always repent later. They can always worship him as king later. That's true. They, They can repent later. But here's the scary thing that we need to keep in mind. The hearts of unbelievers are not morally stationary, like just remaining in the same place when truth is rejected. Right? As truth is rejected, as the, the glory of Jesus is ignored, as the things of God are pushed aside, hearts become harder. Hearts become harder and harder. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and imposters will go from being bad to worse. And then Paul talks about Ephesians chapter 4, our hearts becoming callous, hardened. We see that so vividly illustrated with these chief priests and scribes. I realize that the individuals who make up those two groups, right, it changes over time. But as the gospel talks about them as a unit, right, the chief priests and the scribes, I want you to see just how, as time passes, as they're more and more exposed to Jesus and his ministry, and they continue to reject him, well, instead of softening from their original apathetic rejection, their hearts just get harder and harder and harder so that their rejection of Jesus becomes more and more pronounced. Look at Matthew 21. The blind and the lame came to see Jesus in the temple, and Jesus heals them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, there they are again, when they saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And so what be- began as apathy becomes indignation. 
But again, hearts continue to harden with every rejection of Jesus. Mark 14, 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here they are again, the chief priests and the scribes. They're now seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And so it began as apathy and then indignation has now turned into plotting to arrest and kill him. But hearts continue to harden. Now at his trial... Luke 23.10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And the hardness of their hearts perhaps culminates in them standing at the foot of the cross, mocking Jesus as he's dying. Mark 15, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ The king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so what started as just apathy and indifference to the king of the Jews, the one born king of the Jews, is now open mocking of the Christ, the king of Israel. Friends, if you are not a Christian today, You need to take this to heart. I say pretty often from this pulpit that today is the day of salvation. And part of the urgency there, part of the urgency of that plea is that when hearts reject the truth, when hearts reject the gospel, they harden. So if you reject the gospel today, you say, I don't need to be saved today. Well, you will not come back next Sunday with a heart that is as soft as it was today. Now, that is not to say that God can't save you through a sermon next year if you reject the gospel today. No, God is absolutely, completely sovereign and all-powerful in salvation. But it is to say that your heart might eventually harden to the point that you're not even in church next year to hear sermons. And so I say today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to cry out that Jesus would save you, to turn from your sins and turn towards God, placing all your trust in him and him alone. Coming to the realization that you are not right with God. Your sin separates you from God and you cannot be right with God based on anything that you do. You need Jesus. You need his death on the cross for sinners like you. You need his right, righteous, perfectly righteous record given to you. You need him to take the wrath of God that you deserve for the sins that you've committed against the holy God. And truly believing that that's the only hope of salvation that you have. Acknowledging him as king of your life. And children, let me speak specifically to you Okay, please don't think that getting saved is just something you do when you're older. The wonderful news of the gospel is that today you can be saved. Whatever age you're at right now. Don't push it off for later. Yes, God can save you later. You're never too old to be saved. But the scriptures warn us that hearts harden. I've quoted it before, but... It's so good, I'll keep quoting it till I die. 
There's a line in Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance. He writes, Many are now in hell that purposed to repent. They purposed to repent. Like, they, they planned to do it someday. I'll get to it at some point. I'll get to all this Jesus stuff at some point when I'm older, after this current season of my life. Whatever excuses we might make to tarry. But the scriptures are clear. Hebrews chapter 3, Psalm 95. Today, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Warning number two. Beware. Learn from these chief priests and scribes. Beware of hardening hearts. Warning number three. Is that King Jesus reigns. King Jesus reigns no matter what. We've got a story here, right? About two groups of people who reject King Jesus. I will not have this man to rule over me. They reject him. You've got Herod. You've got the chief priests and the scribes. And so at the beginning of the gospel, King Herod, in his rejection of King Jesus, tries to eliminate him. I'm the true king of the Jews. I will not tolerate one being born king of the Jews. And so he tries to wipe him out. He, he massacres all the young children of the little town of Bethlehem. But of course, you can't get rid of King Jesus like that. And then at the end of the gospel, it's the chief priests and the scribes now who are playing the prominent role in trying to eliminate the threat of King Jesus. And you might remember, at his crucifixion, that very topic comes up, the topic of his kingship. Remember, Pilate asks them a question. Hey, chief priests, hey, scribes, shall I crucify your king? And you remember their response, John nineteen fifteen: we have no king but Caesar. And so Herod tries to eliminate the king. The chief priests and scribes try to deny him as king. But here's the thing, Jesus is still the king. In his birth, he's the one born king of the Jews. In his death, He's the king of the Jews. And there's this beautifully ironic scene at his crucifixion that I think powerfully illustrates this. It's in the, it's in the middle of John 19, uh, starting in verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests, here they are again, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, because we reject him. But rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. And what's Pilate's response? What I have written, I have written. And so he unwittingly testifies to the truth. That Jesus is the true king of the Jews and no one, not Herod the Great, not the chief priests and scribes, not Pilate, no one is changing that truth. Jesus reigns. And he shows this most powerfully in the fact that after that crucifixion, he doesn't stay dead, but he rises again in victory over death to rule and reign as king forevermore. 
So one final time this morning, I plead with those of you who are not Christians to repent and believe today. Because here's the thing. Herod, chief priests and scribes, they found out the hard way that regardless of the fact that they rejected Jesus as king, he's still the king. And you may continue to reject Jesus. I I will not have this man to rule over me. But you're going to find out that same truth one day. But if you continue to reject him, it's not going to be from the glories of heaven. It's going to be from the agonies of hell. Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So warning number three is that regardless of whether you will have him to be your king or not, King Jesus reigns. And today is your chance to joyfully submit under his gracious rule. But friends, at the same time, like what is a warning to unbelievers, a stern warning to unbelievers that King Jesus reigns, well, at the same time for God's people, that is the single greatest comfort in the world. Like that is something worth meditating on this Christmas. That the one born King of the Jews on that first Christmas day, well, he's the one who's come to save us and he now rules and reigns as King forever. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till till moons shall wax and wane no more. So warning number three, well, that also serves as the great encouragement for all of God's people. For the rest of our lives, until our faith turns to sight, that King Jesus reigns. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son, that he in humility came to take on human flesh, that he might bring us to you. So, Father, we pray for those in this room who are your people, that that would be the great joy and confidence of our lives, that Jesus reigns. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you. Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. That they would not harden their hearts, but they would submit to the gospel, believe, and so find eternal life. Pray that you would do that work in their hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.